But I think it'd be valuable for us to start just kind of thinking about what's Luke's big idea in, in the eighth chapter in general. You know, we, we need to contrast Jairus and this woman. Luke does this kind of thing a lot for every story with a wealthy person. There's a, story, a parallel story with a poor person. For every story with a man, there's a parallel story with a woman. For every, every you know, parable or every story with a, with a very religious person, there's a person who's been away, uh, unclean or, or irreligious in some way. Um, this is a strategy that Luke uses, and so it'd be valuable to say, well, let's for starters say Jairus and this woman, man and woman, uh, they're different. Um, one would have been the height of respectability. Jairus, what he does for a living is he is the leader of the synagogue, whether he was bivocational in that. It's kind of an out in the, out in the sticks, a little bit of a country place, maybe as we would think of a, a country pastor who is a, you know, has another job or whatever and leads. Maybe it was like that. Maybe this was his full-time job being the leader of the synagogue. Either way, it came with it a certain level of prestige and respectability where this woman would have been on the other side of that. There would have been lots of questions like, man, for some reason, God has allowed her to be unclean, have this flow of blood, be menstruating for 12 years. I don't know how bad a time that sounds, but it doesn't sound like a good time to me. And most profoundly um, in this culture is that she has not been allowed to worship in a synagogue or go to the feast or temple in 12 years. Church folk like to be around church folk, and that, is, that would feel like a curse. You would look at Jairus and you would go, man, God has really put him in a position where he is respectable. You would look at the woman and go, I don't know why, but God has put her in a position where she's not welcome at church. He, and not only that, you look at, at, at Jairus and you look at this woman and go, I, there's a lot of things we just don't know, so I'll try to do a good job of going, here's where w- what we know stops and here's where I'm guessing uh, continues. But, but when you think about if she were to try to go to Jairus's synagogue, she would not have been allowed in. They apparently live in the same region, the same, maybe the same town, and it just might have been, at least we can do some thinking about, in Jairus's lofty position of honor, if he was to encounter her, he would have been the one saying, look, this is God's business, it's not me saying it, these are the cleanliness rules passed down from Moses, you're not allowed to come into my synagogue. His life is working. Her life is not, but both are desperate. Both have come to a point of just absolute desperation, and they come to Jesus. If, if you're going through so much stuff, you don't have 35 minutes to listen to me and me, and, and you're just thinking about other stuff, can I just tell you, if you're in a place where life has you on your knees, keep falling. Make sure it's at Jesus' feet. Desperate people need Jesus. What's Luke, what, what is Luke trying to say then? We couldn't find more different people if we tried. We couldn't find a more powerful or compassionate Savior if we tried. And if life is working for you, but you're still hurting, like, Jer- like Jairus, you look around and go, life should be working. I should have it all. This should be the good life. And yet there's still a lot of pain going on. Follow Jesus' feet. If life is not working for you, pain or sin or habits, 
or past hurts. This stuff's just all over you, all the time. You feel distant for God. If you want to know how Jesus feels about you, then this story is also for you. Not only with these two stories, but think about the string of miracle stories in Luke 8. I have a, you know, I'm blessed to have a lot of time to sit at my desk and go, huh, what's going on with all of these miracles lined up together? Let's, let's see, Jesus calmed the storm, then we went to the other side of the lake. On the way to the other side, he calmed the storm. And then there was the demon-possessed dude, I am legion, and cast those out, cleanse the man, cleanse the land from the pigs, uh, do all that, and then get back in the boat. And now as he gets off on this side of the lake, the trouble apparently is not only on that side of the lake, but also he gets off on this side of the lake, and there's this woman and Jairus and his daughter. Well, if we think about this, like, okay, a lot of talk about miracles. Maybe there's a formula in here. Maybe there's some way where we do something or there's some set of circumstances and this is when miracles happen, is when these set of circumstances are there. What do these stories have in common? Let's find the formula. Okay, well, in the calming of the storm, Jesus is asleep. He's awakened in a panic. I don't know if there's a prayer request there, but there's, hey, dude, we're dying. Master. Probably they didn't call Jesus dude, does. Does not. I do sometimes, but I say sorry after. Um, No, but hey, master, we're dying. That's the big reveal. Jesus responds by rebuking nature, demonstrating his authority over nature. In casting out of these legion of demons, Jesus is confronted by evil. Again, I didn't hear a prayer request there. It was more just Jesus is confronted and there's a recognition. The demons say, oh my gosh, you're the Lord most high. You know, please don't throw me into the abyss. And Jesus casts them out into the pigs. So Jesus responds with this dominant act of cleansing. The, the, the person is cleansed of the demon. The land is cleansed of the pigs. Jesus has reclaimed this area in, in God's name, in Yahweh's name, by demonstrating Yahweh's power there on the other side of the lake. And then as, as Jairus comes to Jesus, well, he approaches Jesus in a very emotional and a very formal way. This is how you would expect somebody who's very respectable to approach Jesus, um, showing that kind of formality and respect. He, he gets on his knees, he bows before Jesus in a very like emotional way. And how does Jesus respond? Well, too late, right? Instead of saying, oh, what a, what a greeting, Whoa, geez, this, this man, this respectable man, a healing at this guy's house would really, that would really do good things for my reputation and running. Instead, he gets distracted by this, by this woman. He heals Jairus' daughter in a very private, a very sweet scene. This woman approaches Jesus in a secret way, maybe even an embarrassed way, maybe, maybe uh, in, a, in a shameful way. Jesus heals her without even knowing who it was? Does that seem right? Jesus heals somebody and doesn't know who it was? Are you starting to almost go like, I'm not seeing a pattern form at all? It's almost like there's no like A plus B equals Jesus miracle in these stories. Rather, it is more just the story of the powerful and compassionate and authoritative God the Son on the earth being in authority, doing 
what he is here to do. So, like I said, what's Luke, what's Luke going on about? His, it, it's, it's about Jesus' authority over all kinds of things. He he's, has authority over nature and demons and uncleanliness and illness, and today we'll see even over death. But in some ways, it's also about our inability, that people on that side of the lake need Jesus, that people at the top of society need Jesus, that people at the bottom of society need Jesus, that the wealthy need Jesus, that the poor need Jesus, that the religious need Jesus, that the, the pagan need Jesus. The fishermen in the boat needed Jesus. The unchained, crazy, naked guy needed Jesus. The dying child needs Jesus. This uncontrolled illness, despite many doctors and this woman, there's a need for Jesus. So I think we ought to think about both of those things. I think we ought to think about the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. I also think we ought to think about our need for him. Because we talked about this last week, but there was a time in all of these people's lives where they probably, their need, their desperation, they didn't feel so desperate. They had a life that they could manage. But there came a time where they realized that no matter who you are, the world is bigger than you can handle. Evil is bigger than you can handle. And we need Jesus. We might not feel as powerless as they did in the first century. You know, I wonder if you think about these stories and they seem kind of old to you. And you say, you know, maybe a doctor could have helped this woman if it was 2022. Maybe even this little girl, maybe she had something that, you know, maybe she had malaria or I have no idea how she was ill, but maybe she had something that just some antibiotics or, or something in today's day and age would have, you know, would have helped. Surely a, a modern boat and, and modern weather predicting would have helped those fishermen out there on the lake. Maybe even studies in, in psychology and brain chemistry might have helped this guy. I don't know the answer to the, any of these things, but I will tell you that if you feel like maybe our modern world has filled all those gaps to where we don't need this kind of superstitious religious stuff, well then, good luck to you. But I bet, no matter how good the technology has been, no matter how good the medical advancements have been, no matter how modern and, and enlightened our thinking has been, you have been in a point where you are desperate. You've been in a point, despite all of the advancements of our age, where you've gotten to a point where you've said, man, I need a savior. I imagine still doctors can tell stories where they didn't have the answers. Sailors, despite all the modern technology, have felt the danger of the sea we still mourn for children and are astonished at some people's outrageous behavior. So if you're in the camp, which is I assume why we're all here, if you're in the camp where you have noticed that despite 2,000 years of really amazing discovery and innovation and technology and learning, we still find places where we get to the end of our rope. We still find places where there just weren't answers, where we have walked down every road we know to walk down, and we have found our limits. And also that rather than a method, rather than a system, rather than teaching, here's how you get your miracle, 
rather than that, that we would be people who recognize, I need a savior, I need him to be an authority, I need to fall at his feet. That's the big strategy for my life. Luke wants to remind us of Jesus' authority. He also wants to remind us of our limits. That Jesus is this compassionate, powerful Savior at whose feet you're welcome to fall, no matter who you are. So let's take this little story in four scenes and just kind of walk through it. Verse 40 starts and says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Do you, do you see the contrast from the other side? Jesus went to the other side. Who was waiting for him? Just one demon-possessed dude. Now, a lot of demons, apparently, but only one guy is waiting for him. Jesus comes to this side, and you see the contrast. Why are they waiting for him there? Well, because he has been the miracle worker. He has been the one who has cleansed people. He's been the one who's healed people. Interesting, later he's going to go back over to the other side of the lake, and there will be a huge crowd waiting for him because apparently the demon-possessed man took Jesus up on the offer and went and told all of the townspeople on the other side of the lake what Jesus had done for him. But, but in our story, Jesus has just very little time to rest. Like in his humanity, imagine how Jesus, I imagine Jesus said, let's go to the, back to the other side of the lake and take your time. I rose slowly. I'm going to be in, this is why I sleep on boats. And there came a man named Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Let's think about what we know about, uh, about Jairus. First of all, he is the ruler of a synagogue. We talked about this, but he is a person of influence. As Jesus steps on the scene, in his rabbinic role, as Jesus goes from synagogue to synagogue, the people in Jesus' town, or the people in Jairus' town would have asked him, hey, what do we think about Jesus? He was the man that would decide what scripture was going to be read that week, who was going to read the scripture, um, how it was, you know, if a guest speaker was going to be there, if there's going to be a traveling rabbi, I'm sure he did a lot of speaking. He was the one, the spiritual leader in the town. And I, if you've been a leader in any capacity, you know the pressure that that is. The people are looking to you and you don't want to get it wrong. And the easiest thing to do is always just do what you've always done. Always just rely on tradition. And he had a lot of tradition to rely on. So he's this person of influence that may or may not have had some conflict with Jesus in the past. Again, I don't think he's in Nazareth. We're probably up more by Capernaum. But you know how Jesus was treated in the synagogue in Nazareth. Ah, this can't be, this can't be him. Isn't this just Joseph's son? Now, it seems like he was received a little better elsewhere, um, but still there was this like, we don't really know who this guy is. And Jairus has a great burden. Jairus falling at Jesus' feet, that's a very influential act for the people who he shepherded. So we know that he's got that kind of pressure. We also know that he had an only daughter. And isn't that a lot to know? His position in the community and also his personal, he has one little girl. I give my kids money uh, if I'm going to tell a story about them, and I would have gone broke uh, telling the stories I want to tell right now. To be a daddy and to have a little girl is an intimate thing, is a special thing. 
And to have a 12-year-old girl that this guy was just broken hearted, that she was dying. The dad, what do you want to do as a dad? You want to have the answers. Especially an influential, an influential man like Jairus. He, he would have said, I, he, wanted, he wanted to say, I know what to do. But instead, he is at his wit's end and it has come to the point where he's just going to go throw himself at Jesus' feet. He doesn't know what else to do. Man, I just imagine him sitting at his daughter's bedside just thinking about all those first steps, just thinking about all those story times, just thinking about all the cuddles, just thinking about, you know, how the boys are just boogers and breaking stuff and the girls have some tenderness and some just that cuddle time, all that stuff. I wonder if he's just sitting there thinking about what it has been like, the amazing joy it has been to raise this girl for 12 years just now to watch her slip away. I don't know if that's been your story, but you've felt that kind of desperate, haven't you? And then we know that he fell at Jesus' feet. In the middle of this pressing crowd, I would love to know how he did it. You know, as people pressing all around him, maybe it speaks to Jairus's like standing in the community that even the crowd parted and made way for him. But whatever it is, he finds a way to get to to get Jesus' attention. Can you imagine the murmuring? Did the leader of the synagogue just fall in worship at this traveling rabbi's feet? That's not what happens. The traveling rabbi comes in and Jairus goes, welcome, welcome, I'll be watching you. You can speak on uh, this Sabbath, but hey, we do things a certain way around here. That would have been him. And instead, all of the people that had maybe been to his synagogue and knew him as the religious leader he was, they watch him just fall at the feet of Jesus. And can I tell you, for all those of us that are religious leaders, if our, the people who see us, if you're a mom, a dad, a leader, a, a leader here at church, a leader in your business, and people know you're a believer, the best thing they can ever see you do is fall at Jesus' feet. That's how to be a follower of Jesus. So then... The second scene, that so the scene with Jairus gets interrupted, and there's this scene with this desperate woman. We've seen a desperate man, now we see a desperate woman. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Well, what do we know about this woman? We don't know much about her background. Well, we can know a lot about Jairus' place in the community by, by his role of the leader of the, of the synagogue. We know very little about where this woman comes from. In fact, her namelessness sticks out, doesn't it? Oh, Jairus came, and then just the woman. She kind of came out of nowhere. We're not sure where she went. We don't know her name. We just know that she was desperate, hurting, and went to find Jesus. We do know that her life, what her life might have looked like with an illness that made her unclean, it would have been marked by a, not only a lack of worship with other Jewish people, but it would have been marked by, by just being an outcast, by just a lack of human contact. Man, maybe some of us over the last few years got a little taste of what a lack of human contact is like, right? Like, let me tell you, teaching students over Zoom, not near as cool is teaching students in person. Like any kind of break, but it's better than not teaching them at all. I was grateful for it. 
but any kind of break in human contact. Like when we are experiencing a lot of human contact, you know, this is hard for me to remember because there's eight of us at the house, right? Like we don't really feel like we're lacking for human contact all that much. And yet, I know that this is a very busy season of my life and it might be that five years from now, 10 years from now, it's different. You might be in a season where you go, I know what a little bit of lack of human contact feels like. Can you imagine 12 years of being an outcast? This, Jesus did not just heal this woman from a physical illness. Jesus gave this woman her life back in the community of God. She got to fire up that old potato salad recipe. You know, like, got to participate. We know it was marked by financial struggle. I bet you have stories in your family of people who had financial security and then an illness. Just wrecked that. Whether or not she started with plenty or whether or not she started, you know, struggling, it sure seems like she started with more than she's got now because we're told she spent all she had. She spent her whole living. Every day, all the time, just trying to work this out. This was 12 years of desperation. Another thing we know about her is that it was going on for 12 years. Where else did you see the, the number 12? That's how old the little girl is. Can Luke write? Come on now. Luke can write. He puts the right details in. So you get this picture the whole time that Jairus has been raising this precious daughter. All the daddy-daughter ice cream dates, all the all the, you know, tucking her in at night and singing Jesus Loves the Little Children, all those moments, while, while all of that sweetness is happening and comfort at Jairus' house, this woman's been an outcast in exile, lonely. You know, 12 years ago was 2010. I can't believe that. 12 years ago, I would guess 1992. But... That was not 12 years ago. That was a very long time ago. Um, but 12 years ago was 2010. Can you imagine if you found an illness that made it where you couldn't participate in any social gathering in 2010, and today you were still desperately doing everything you could to solve it? That's a long time. The sense of desperation is heavy on this woman. Maybe the woman had been suffering for 12 years as opposed to, you know, the, the number 12 usually refers to Israel. Uh, maybe this is kind of in the background. Uh, last, last week we talked about Jesus cleansing the, not just the man of the demons, but also the, the land of the uncleanly pigs and, and all of that might have meant. And so maybe this number 12 is popping up again to remind us that Jesus isn't just here to solve individual problems. He's here to cleanse Israel. He's here to be the Messiah. We also know that she had tried everything, spent all her living, could not be healed by anyone. Man, again, I've heard story after story of people on the roller coaster of, man, the doctor said he doesn't have any answers, but he gave me a referral to somebody else, and we have a lot of hope for this. We're we're really hoping that with this next thing we're going to try, this is going to be the thing that works. Twelve years this woman had been, said many, many doctors. Truly desperate. So she does something that puts her at great risk. Think about what she does. 
Where is she not allowed to be? In crowds, especially in crowds of religious people, people who want to stay clean and not touch unclean people. And how she handles it is she goes to this crowded place to see Jesus. You can just imagine her on the way going, maybe they'll stone me. It'd be better than this. This is truly the last idea I have. It's either this or just just take it and go out to a leper colony and get leprosy and die with them. Those are my options. What if they find out I'm unclean? What if this doesn't work? It might be obvious when we read the story, but maybe it's, it's not so obvious. The hem of Jesus' garment is on the ground. Maybe knee high, maybe ankle high. But either way, this woman was not in a dignified posture as she comes to Jesus. She's on her hands and knees. She's on her belly. She's diving. She's crawling. So while Jairus makes this big gesture in bowing, this woman just sneaks up in danger of the trampling crowd and just barely touches the corner of Jesus' robe. Jairus humbles himself. This poor woman is just humiliated. If you're in a position where it's time to humble yourself, would you throw yourself at Jesus' feet? Or if it's gotten past that, you're way past being humble and you've just been humbled. You're in a place instead of humiliation. Would you throw yourself at Jesus' feet? If life has driven you to humility or if you have been humiliated. Come to Jesus and find the Savior that loves you. Immediately, her illness was healed. Imagine her thrill. Imagine just that feeling of like, oh my gosh, I know what this has felt like for 12 years and that feeling isn't there anymore. I'm healed. But also imagine the very strange position she's in. This has been both, both very public and very private, hasn't it? She has had this very public healing that nobody has any idea what's gone on. And so now she is there, maybe hands and knees, maybe on her stomach, maybe crouching down, but in this very strange position, thrilled with her healing, and maybe just hoping that'll be it. I'll just sneak home and I'll go present myself to the priests and they'll say I'm clean and I can get back to going to synagogue and being in the marketplace and doing the thing. But instead, Jesus stops and says, who is that? This third scene is the compassion of Jesus. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me when all denied it? Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me for I felt that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She uh, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Who touched me? There's some comedy in this scene, isn't there? That's a pretty silly little moment. Jesus stopping and saying, who touched me? By the way, if you didn't know this story your whole life and had just heard this today, would you be going, power could just go out of Jesus? Where else would we know that? What other stories would we have where Jesus is just walking by and accidentally healing people? No, it's usually not only with his knowledge, but his will. 
I don't know how to explain that. That's more a fun conversation than me standing up here and dogmatically telling it. It certainly has something to do with the Father's will, the work of the Holy Spirit as Jesus is there. And it also certainly has something to do with just the authority of Jesus in this season of his ministry as he is here to prove that he is the one to follow. So he says, well, who touched me? And Peter goes, who touched you? Jesus, there's like a thousand people here. <laughs> Everyone is the answer, Jesus. Everyone has touched you. And Jesus goes, no. Peter's trying to make sense of it. But Jesus says, for I perceived that power had gone out from me. This is bonkers. I love it. Luke is presenting us with an unwieldy Jesus, isn't he? It's almost like you can't control Jesus at all. It's almost like the power of God. It's almost like the deity of Christ is not like a part of him that he can access sometimes if he tries hard enough. It's almost like, like Aslan is good, but he's not safe. Are you with me? Like, like the Jesus is not somebody that we come to and we are in charge. We control him, but the Jesus is just God. And when he saw that, uh, and when he saw the woman, um, she was not hidden. When she saw that she was not hidden, I'm sorry, she comes trembling. When she knows she's not going to get away with it, that she's not going to just sneak off and be healed. Well, then all of a sudden, another realization strikes her that she's in the middle of a huge crowd with all the attention on her. Which she was looking for some community and fellowship, maybe, but this is not what she had in mind. She was thinking maybe dinner for eight as a starter, you know, but instead, here she is with the Son of God's focus is on her. What will he say? After all, she has broken a lot of rules to get here. She should not be here. Jesus was in the middle of something, you know, he was on his way to, to heal Jairus' daughter. This was, this was a big deal. We've seen his power, we've seen him calming storms, we've seen his authority in casting out demons, and now we get just to see his incredible compassion up close. As she tells her story, wouldn't a, a merely human leader maybe have a moment where he goes, look, what you did wasn't great, but God loves you, go in peace. But instead he stops because he doesn't want, to, he doesn't want her to get away thinking that he accidentally healed her. That if he could have had it another way, he wouldn't have. But rather, he wants to take a moment, look at her, and use one of the most beautiful, intimate, loving, compassionate, I would die for you kind of words in all of any language, daughter. Daughter. From outcast to daughter. If you need somebody to love you that much, would you throw yourself at the feet of Jesus? Who doesn't say, about time, but rather says, daughter. I love that he uses the word daughter because the last time we heard that word, it was talking about Jairus' little girl. Like Jairus feels about that little girl, that's how Jesus feels about this woman. You know, I always say I was kind of, I'm kind of thick-headed, and, and when, when we got married, I remember, because I also have 
being a Bible nerd is not new. Um, I remember Tiffany walking down the aisle and me thinking in that moment, the bride of Christ. Oh my gosh, could it be that we are beautiful to God like Tiffany is beautiful to me right now? Could it be that he loves us like I love her right now? Then I remember having Emily and, and holding Emily in my arms and going, son, like God the Father, like our Father, like is it possible? Like if somebody walked in and said, hey, she'll live a long, full life, but you have to die right now, I would have been like, great, that sounds like a super good deal. Like I'd do that in a heartbeat. Could it be? That God feels that way about me, about you. And then when, when Isabel came home, you know, our youngest two are adopted. And when Isabel came home, and, and I, I mean, she was my daughter right away. And I just love her so much. And I remember thinking, oh, we are adopted into the family of God. God didn't get stuck with us. It's not, it, it is that we started not in his family and he has welcomed us and called us daughter, son. That's my boy. That's my little girl. This is how God feels about you. This is how Jesus felt about this woman. And he doesn't want her just sneaking away with a story of how she stopped being sick. I got some news for you. She died again, you know? This little girl who's going to get healed and also this woman, not alive in the physical sense anymore. But what they received was having Jesus look at them and say, daughter. Man, if you're desperate, would you stop being rebellious? Would you stop blaming God? Would you stop like talking about how life has got you down? Would you, would you just stop all of it and humble yourself and just go, I need somebody to love me and let Jesus love you? He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. This is not mechanical. We're not teaching a formula. This is not she had enough faith or anything like that. This is Jesus commending this woman. Great job, little girl. You did it. Way to come to me. Your faith, you know how you were desperate and so you threw yourself at my feet? That was the right thing to do. You did the right thing. Now go in peace. When was the last time this woman felt peace, felt shalom, felt a sense of well-being? I don't know that that, I don't know if she can remember that. But Jesus says, go whole. Not fragmented anymore, but go in peace. What a beautiful scene. What a gorgeous scene. Except, weren't we in the middle of something? <laughs> Hadn't Jairus come and prostrated himself before Jesus? Wasn't Jesus on the way to somewhere when this beautiful scene happens? Maybe Luke has something to say about the equality in value of the Jairuses in the world and the anonymous hurting people in the world. Maybe Luke has something to say about his Jairus and his little girl valuable to Jesus. Of course. Is it because he's the, the religious leader of the synagogue? No, it's got nothing to do with that. But this woman whose name we do not know, who had been ostracized for 12 years, is every bit worth Jesus' attention as Jairus and his daughter. Maybe Luke wants us to think something like that. 
Maybe Luke has something to say about the grace and power of God that isn't lacking in supply. Jairus, I can love her and love you too. This isn't an either-or situation. Jesus is the king on that side. He's the king on this side. He loves those at the top. He loves those at the bottom. And that leads us to the last scene, this fourth scene, where you know, we just get to see the absolute authority of Jesus over death. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. In Greek, they put the word they want the most emphasis on in the beginning, and dead is the first word. It would be like this guy comes, like panting, and goes, dead, that's your daughter. It's pretty powerful. But Jesus, on hearing, answered and said, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother and the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, uh, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. That's what live people do, it's eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. Do not fear. That gets said at some pretty weird times in the scriptures, when angels appear, when boats are about to tip over. Do not fear. Fear and faith. You can't throw yourself at Jesus' feet and then be afraid about the future. It just doesn't work together. You just either are throwing yourself at Jesus' feet or you're worried about the future, but you can't be both, uh, you can't be both in equal measure. So he says, do not fear, only believe. Believe in what? Aren't we supposed to believe in what we just saw? Jairus, I know you've just gotten this report. Don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter's dead. Jairus, did you just see what happened? Jairus, believe. I love that we are not told to believe in what we haven't seen. We are supposed to believe in what we have seen. We are supposed to believe in the record we have of Jesus. If the tomb is empty, then throw yourself at Jesus' feet no matter how desperate you are and stop worrying about the future. If the tomb is full, man, I don't know. Live fast, die young. I don't know. Leave a good-looking corpse. That's not an option. <laughs> good-looking parts out of the question. Too old to die young, you know what I'm saying? If the tomb is empty, then when you have troubles in your life, can you imagine Jesus going, hey, would you believe? Don't fear, believe. Not believe that I'm going to work it out like you think. Not believe that it's going to happen in the way that you prescribe, but can you trust me? Have you seen enough, Jairus, that you could trust me? Lighthouse, have we seen enough? that we can trust Jesus, then don't fear, but believe. And she will be well, Jesus says. And apparently Jairus does believe because Jesus enters his home. Good for Jairus. Again, there's this really sweet scene. The woman was healed in a public road. This little girl, is, it's a much more private affair. Just a few disciples and, his par and, and her parents. Maybe it wasn't time yet for Jesus to to um, you know, show his conquering over death, although probably it was pretty hard to hide from this point. The woman had touched Jesus on the sly. Jesus takes this little girl's hand. 
The woman has been surrounded by people wanting Jesus. This little girl is surrounded by people laughing at Jesus. Probably professional mourners. Right? They had professional mourners come in and wail in my living room because my daughter's dying, and then the daughter dies, and they go to work. All right, oh, oh, no, we're so sad. Jesus comes in and goes, you guys are premature, and they're like, we know when somebody's dead. We do this for a living. And right there in Jairus' house, we see the Lord Most High overcome death. Who is this? Who is he to you? On the other side of the lake, Jesus had said, go tell everyone what God has done for you. Here he says, let's keep this between us for now. Jesus is the ultimate authority. He's got authority over the weather. He's got authority over demons. He's got authority over illness. He's got authority over death. Can you imagine a God with that authority, without love? I think there are people all over the world that believe in an ultimate God that love is not built right into his character. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, his son Jesus, the God-man, is the ultimate authority in the universe and also is all the ultimate compassion for the scared people with the boat rocking, for the hurting dude who has demons, for the outcast woman, for the possessed, for the sick, for the grieving dad. Jesus, the ultimate authority and also the lover of your soul. Who is he? Who is he to you? What is your hope in? On the faith to desperation level, where are you? Doesn't matter. Throw yourself at Jesus' feet. This is not a formula for miracles. It might be the exact opposite of a formula. There's no magic words. There's no magic strategies. There is only the Son of God, God the Son, in whose presence nobody who approaches Him ever leaves unclean. If you're desperate, if you're unclean, if you need a Savior, if you're afraid, if you're hurting, if you're sorrowful, if you need somebody to take you by the hands and look you in the eyes and go, oh, child, would you come to him? Hey, Lighthouse, I don't know what tomorrow looks like, but don't fear, only believe. And come to him in faith and find yourself with a brand new heart that's clean. Man, I wonder if desperation has crept in. I wonder if fear has crept in. I wonder if, uh, if struggle, I wonder if just unfaithfulness has crept in, if, if sin has crept in, if, if habits have crept in, if, if the voices that are the hurts of your past are so, so in your head that, that you, you've kept yourself away from him. Today, would you repent? If you need to repent for the first time and just come to Jesus, be a Christian, be a follower of His, become His disciple. Yeah, you don't have to have all the answers of what that means. It means you follow Jesus. Ask the person next to you, hey, how do I start following Jesus? They'll tell you. Come and ask me. We'll get you going. But you don't have to know the whole road. Are you in a place where you go, I'm out of options. Maybe I should try Jesus. Then would you try that now? And if you've been walking for Him for a while, with a while, 
for a while, with a while, because of a while. But if you've been walking with him and you've just forgotten how compassionate he is, if you've let legalism, if you've let formula consume you, if you've let sin consume you, would you give up on that right now and come to him?